by way of introduction, our text today, Luke chapter 20, um, it is all about authority. That's the big idea of our text, authority. Now, um, we all have an understanding, <coughs> excuse me, of what authority is all about. We get it. You know, I made a joke last week in the service, you know, you're driving on the freeway, you see a cop, uh, and you slow down. Brenda will tease me. She'll say, careful, Ted, there's God, you know. And, uh, you know, you see authority, and immediately you respond to it. Hopefully, you immediately respond uh, to it. This is going to be my trusty companion this morning, I can tell already. When I was a kid, I grew up by the beach, and um, we used to go down there often, and um, the, the particular beach where, uh, where, where we went to by our house was a west-facing beach, and the way that the Palos Verdes Peninsula juts out, the tide would come in and the tide would carry everything that was there in the water down, you know, uh, towards the north. And the Army Corps of Engineers had built this jetty to keep the beach from eroding, but it created a little catch basin right there where we would go. And it was a great place for for spearfishing, and we would go down there and diving and spearfishing and uh, and all. And uh, during the summer months, the kelp, as it would get warm, some of the kelp would slough off and, and actually it would, would become disconnected and it would all float down there as well. And so sometimes the kelp would get so thick, it would go out 20, 30 feet and it would go down four or five feet to the bottom, you know, and it was, it was just a solid, tangled mess. And people didn't like wading out in the kelp because it was very slimy, but we loved wading out in the kelp because it acted like a net. It caught everything. So we would find masks and snorkels and fins, but we would also find cash. We would find money that people would go out surfing and the money would go out of their pockets or they'd be swimming or bodyboarding, whatever. Um, and, uh, and so we would find like singles, fives, tens, twenty sometimes. One day, my friend and I were down there and we hit the jackpot and we came home and I had cash just completely spread out across my bed. And uh, I mean, covered the whole thing. And my dad walks in, and he's like, what's going on? And I'm like, there's money down at the beach. And he's like, what on earth are you doing home? Get in the Jeep. And so we went back. <laughs> so now my dad's in there with us, and we're still, we're grabbing money. Now, you got to be kind of cool about it, because you don't want everybody to know that, you know, there's money out there. So, so it's, it's not like, oh, I found a 20. You know, you just kind of put it in your pocket. Be, be cool, man, you know. Uh, be cool, nerds, you know, so you're, so, the, but we brought a little bit of attention to ourselves, the lifeguard comes out, and he's like, hey, what's going on, and so I said, I pulled this wad of cash out of my pocket, I'm like, we're finding money, and he's like, whoa, and so now he's in there with us, and we're all waiting through, now a crowd really starts to gather, and this is where authority was our friend, because this lifeguard got out of the water, he goes, oh, everybody, stay back, dangerous situation, you can't come in here. And he actually forbid anybody from coming into the water as we were just grabbing bills left and right. I think I made two or 300 bucks that day. I mean, we seriously scored. It was awesome. Wish it was like that every day. Let's go to the beach, honey. It would be great. But authority, right? And, and, and so here it off, we're, we left off Jesus overturning tables, right, in the temple. Um, He'd arrived to Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. The next day was Monday. That's the day he goes to the temple. And when he gets there, 
Um, the priests, they had set up shop in the court of the Gentiles. They're making money hand over fist. They turned it into a swap meet. And instead of praying for the people, they were praying on the people. And Jesus was not cool with that. So he, he started overturning the tables. And as he rebuked them, what he did was he exerc- he's exercising his authority, but he also cites the authority of the word, right? Jesus is the word who became flesh and dwelt among us. So he, he's exercising his authority and he's quoting from Isaiah 56 verse 7. My father's house is to be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. And so he's, he's operating in authority and he is using and citing the Bible as the authority that he's operating under. And what we need to understand is that the Christian life comes down to authority. Ultimately, that's the question. At the end of the day, you have to answer the question, who is it that rules and reigns in your life? Who is it that rules and reigns? Will it be God or will it be you? Or the worst case scenario, will you pay God lip service and say it's God, but really it's you, right? That's the question at the end of the day. Now here in Jerusalem, what we're going to see in our text is that the the religious leaders have a problem because this question of authority, well, in their mind, they ruled. They had the power. They set the terms. They ran the show, and Jesus was bad for business. And so this creates a conflict. They want to destroy him. That's where we left off in chapter 19. they're, they're, They're wanting to destroy, to abolish, to kill, to get him out of the way entirely. This is the backdrop that we come to to chapter 20 uh, with. So chapter 20 of of Luke, verse 1, now it happened. On one of those days, on one of what days? Well, in verse 48, or verse 47, it tells us he was, of chapter 19 tells us that he was teaching daily in the temple. And so it was on one of those days that he's teaching daily. Matthew's gospel actually indicates that this was probably Tuesday that this happened. Monday, he, Sunday, he comes in triumphal entry. Monday, overturns the table. Now it's Tuesday. He's teaching, and it happens on one of those days, probably Tuesday, as he taught the people in the temple and preached the gospel that, here it is, the chief priests and the scribes, together with the elders, they confronted him. And they spoke to him, saying, tell us by what authority you are doing these things. Or who is he who gave you this authority. And so Luke here, he begins this chapter, you know, indicating that it happened on one of those days that Jesus is teaching. And um, in that day, the practice of those who taught, and this was, was typically the, the job of the scribes, you know, they were the, the ones that would dissect everything. The practice of those that would taught was that um, they would quote the, the prominent rabbis that they sat under, they would quote rabbis' teachings, they would, you know, cite tradition and so on. But Jesus, he didn't teach this way. He spoke on his own authority. And here now we read that the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders are confronting him. They want to know, hey, what authority are you doing these things? By what authority are you turning over all these tables? By what authority are you teaching the word as you do? Who gave you this authority? And um, understand, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders, these were the three groups that comprised 
the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the Jewish ruling council. And so you have, you know, the, the, this group together, the ruling council, they're the ones that have the power, they're the one that set the terms, they're the one that run the show. And the, here's where it, all their power comes from. The chief priests, they claimed their authority from Moses, right? And uh, because the law said that the tribe of Levi, Levi was to serve in the temple, Right? Moses brought them the law. The law stipulated that the tribe of Levi, Levi was to serve as the chief priest. They were of the tribe of Levi. That's where they derived their authority. So they could cite that. Say, this is where we get our authority. The scribes, these were students of the law. They claimed their authority from the schools that they went to. They had more degrees than Fahrenheit. You know? And so they could say, hey, you know, I studied under this rabbi, I, I, I studied under this school, I graduated from this institution, that's where I get my authority. Then you had the elders. Now, elders were the leaders of the various families and clans, and they were typically selected and appointed because of their wisdom and their experience. And so they could cite, you know, their appointment from their clan and say, hey, this is where I get my authority from And so these collectively are the people who write books and speak at conferences. And, if you know, they're the experts. When something goes down and CNN wants somebody to interview, they're the ones that, that they call up and say, hey, tell us about this religious thing or whatever. And so here they are with all their authority, pompous and, and all. And they're sick of Jesus because the people love him and follow him. And as a result, their power base is waning. He's turning over the tables. He's hitting the bottom line. He's bad for business. <coughs> and all the people love him. And so they hate him, man. They just, they, they're like, hey, we don't, we don't want this guy around. So they're not about to concede any authority to him. They're not about to yield to him at all. What they do is they fight against him. And they're saying, essentially, look, you didn't go to college. You didn't go to grad school. You didn't pass some ordination council. Right? And so just like those who fight against Jesus today, what do they do? They go after his authority. They want to go after his credibility. They're like, hey, you know, you, who made you king? You know, this is their attitude. Who made you the boss? Now, there's two outcomes that they're hoping for when they come to him and they say this to him. Hey, who gave you, you know, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority? They're looking for, for, for two outcomes. And frankly, either one will suit their needs. Either number one... They want Jesus to admit that he's operating without proper authority so that they can discredit him. Or number two, they want him to claim that his authority comes from God. And then what they can do is they can charge him with blasphemy. And frankly, they don't care which one it is. Either he says, oh, well, I just I took this authority upon myself, or hey, God gave me this authority. <clears throat> but he answers in verse 3, and he said to them, I also will ask you one thing and answer me. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? So Jesus says, hey, look, I'll tell you what. I'm going to answer your question with a question. You answer my question, I'll answer your question, which was kind of a common debate tactic of the day. And so Jesus says, hey, what what, what do you say? What about the, the baptism of John? Was it from heaven or was it from men? So Jesus, why does he take him to the baptism of John? Here's why. Um, John the Baptist proclaimed that Jesus was the Messiah, right? And he was 
widely respected by every, everybody saw him as a prophet come from God. And so what was his message? His message was to point to Jesus and say, hey, he's the Messiah. Well, the problem was is that he was not received by the religious rulers. They opposed John. They couldn't stand John for the same reason they couldn't stand Jesus. They opposed him. And so, so on the one hand, and for the first reason that Jesus brings it up, is that he, he wants to bring that dynamic to light. And secondly, he wants to underscore a spiritual principle that if you reject God's revealed truth, that God's not going to reveal to you new truth. Okay? And so John the Baptist had come as a messenger from God with a message from God, hey, here's the Messiah, here's Jesus, he's your Messiah. If you reject that, there's, there, there's no more revealed truth that you're going to uh, receive, right? And so as far as these religious leaders were concerned, John the Baptist, like Jesus, didn't come from the right institutions, uh, and uh, he didn't come up through their systems, he didn't go to the right schools and all of those things. He simply did the work of God by the power of the Holy Spirit to point people to Jesus as the Messiah. And John was despised by these religious leaders, as I said, but the people loved him. Why? Because they all recognized, and this is the key, that John was a prophet sent by God. So Jesus uses this question to explain who he is and, and also to expose the hypocrisy of the leaders. See, if John indeed was a prophet sent by God, then Jesus was saying he rightly proclaimed that I am the Messiah, and, and if this was true, then, then of course I have all authority, right? And so this is why Jesus goes to this question. Now, Jesus then turns the tables on these guys, right? Monday, he's overturning the tables. Now, Tuesday, he's turning the tables, and he turns the tables on these guys. He's got them in a dilemma. See, because the real question wasn't by whose authority Jesus was operating. The real question was whether the religious leaders had accepted John's call to repentance and whether they were preparing their hearts for the coming of God and were going to surrender their authority to the Lord Jesus Christ. So these guys, they call an emergency meeting, and we see it there in verse 5. (coughs) Excuse me. Jesus asks them this question. And they reasoned among themselves. They're like, oh, huddle up, guys. We're, 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 this is a sticky one. To reason, reason among themselves is saying, well, if we say that he, that, that he was from heaven, then Jesus is going to say, why then did you not believe him? And if we say, verse 6, that, hey, John was from men, he says, all the people will stone us, which is a bad day, right? And so he says, for they're persuaded that John was a prophet. And so they answered that they did not know where it was from. Oh, we don't know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. He's like, you're going to take the chicken exit, then, then, I, then I'm not going to answer you. See, because what happened when they said that they didn't know, they knew, right? The problem was they weren't sincere seekers of the truth. They cared more about making a case against Jesus than they did receiving the truth. John Haywood, back in the 1500s, he said this. He said, there are none so blind as those who will not see. The most deluded people are those who choose to ignore 
<laughs> what they already know. There's a real apologetics lesson here for us, by the way. Some people you will engage in Christian witness. Maybe you'll talk to them on social media, whatever the case may be. And you will lovingly try to point them to Jesus. And what happens is they're more than happy to debate you, but they want to debate all the peripheral areas, all the peripheral things. But they won't give you one inch on the subject that matters that Jesus is the Christ, he's the son of the living God. They they won't go there. And so at some point, you just got to recognize further discussion with this person is fruitless because they they are not willing to, to have an honest debate. That's what Jesus is experiencing here. And so now Jesus turns to the people and he takes them back to the word of God. It says, verse 9, Then he began to tell the people this parable. A certain man planted a vineyard. He leased it to vine dressers, and he went into a far country for a long time. Now at vintage time, he sent a servant to the vine dressers that they might give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the vine dressers beat him, and they sent him away empty-handed. And again he sent another servant, and they beat him also, treated him shamefully, and they sent him away empty-handed. And again he sent a third, and they wounded him also, and they cast him out. Then, verse 13, the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Probably they will respect him when they see him, but when the vine dressers saw him, they reasoned among themselves, saying, this is the heir, come, let us kill him, that the inheritance may be Ours. And so they cast him out of the vineyard, and they killed him. Jesus here, rightly prophesying his own death. It's not a surprise to him. He knows he's going to come to Jerusalem to die. He knows why he's going to die. He knows who's going to do it. <coughs> so he says in this parable, they cast him out of the vineyard, and they killed him. Um, Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those vine dressers, And give the vineyard to others. And when they heard it, they said, certainly not. Right? No, that's not going to be how it goes down. Now, why did they react this way? Here's why. They immediately recognize what's going down here. Jesus, when he tells this parable, he's actually basing it on a prophecy that Isaiah the prophet gave in Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. We don't have time to turn there, but you can read that and you can see the striking similarities. And Jesus, what he's done is he's taken this prophecy that was made about him and he has turned it into a parable, modern story, with, 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 a, with a biblical application. And, and what he's doing is he's taking this prophecy by Isaiah the prophet, which was a prophecy against Jerusalem by name about God's vineyard and about the wicked farmers that had been entrusted with it, right? And what's he doing is, is he is saying, this is who you are. And immediately they recognized it, and that's why their answer is certainly not. They're like, you know, no, we're not going to receive that kind of thing. What's Jesus doing here? He's given a common, he's a description of a common business practice at the time. That the landowner would lease out his field to the tenants, and those tenants, the, referred to as the vine dressers, 
were then entrusted to work the field and then to oversee the harvest of the field. And then the owner of that field would receive the first part of that harvest. Now, the characters in this parable are easy to identify. Let me put it on the screen for you. The vineyard represents Israel. We see throughout Scripture that Israel is often referred to as a vineyard. The owner of the vineyard is obviously God. The vine dressers are these religious leaders here of Jerusalem. The servants are the prophets and the priests that God had sent to Israel over the years whom they had rejected. The son, obviously, is Jesus Christ. And the others that he refers to in the story, he basically says he, the owner's going to cast them out of the vineyard and he's going to destroy them. And he's going to give that vineyard there in verse 16. He's going to give it to others. This is a reference to what the Lord did in, with Israel when Israel rejected him. Who did he turn to? He turned to the Gentiles. And this ushers in the birth of the church. We live what is now commonly referred to as the age of the Gentiles, where God has turned to the Gentiles to execute his, his purposes, right? And, and so the problem, though, is that Israel, man, God had called them to be a light to the Gentiles, and they rejected it. Isaiah 49, verse 6, you'll recall, God had told them, I will make you a light to the Gentiles, and you'll bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. But they rejected their Messiah, and so God turns to the Gentiles. Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 10. Let me put this on the screen for you. Paul says this, How can anyone preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. But not all the Israelites accepted the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word about Christ. But I ask... Did they not hear? Of course they did. Their voice has gone out into all the earth, their words to the end of the world. Again, I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I'll make you envious by those who are not a nation. He's talking about the Gentiles. I will make you angry by a nation that has no understanding. And Isaiah boldly says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. Again, speaking of the Gentiles, but concerning Israel, he says, all day long, I've held out my hands to a disobedient and an obstinate people. And so here's a picture of what God has now done. He has turned to the Gentiles. He's established his church. We now are proclaiming the gospel, right? But these folks here in our text, the ones to whom Messiah was sent, they rejected him. And Jesus is saying, this is, this is how it's going down. So their attitude is, no, certainly not. This is not how it's going to go down. Verse 17. And then he, Jesus, looked at them. And that, that phrase, looked at them, it means that he, he stared intently at them. And I wonder for how long. But he looked at them and he said, What then is this that is written? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. He says, Whoever falls on that stone will be broken. But on whomever it falls... It will grind him to powder. And the chief priests and the scribes, that very hour, they sought to lay hands on him, but they feared the people, for they knew he had spoken this parable against them. The Bible often refers to Jesus as a stone or as a rock. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul 
calls Jesus the rock of provision that followed Israel in the desert. Uh, Peter in 1 Peter 2.8 called Jesus the stone of stumbling. Uh, in Daniel 2.45, Jesus is described there as the stone cut without hands that crushes the kingdoms of the world. <clears throat> and here in verse 17, Jesus is quoting from Psalm 118, which describes the coming Messiah to Jerusalem, right? And now, that's when he says the, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Now, there's a story that was told about the construction of the temple, second temple that King Herod constructed, the one that was in Jesus' day. And, uh, and the, the, by, by way of history and story, folklore, the way this story goes, that as they quarried the stones, and they didn't quarry the stones on site, they were quarried off site, and then they were brought huge stones, as big as school buses, man. These things were massive. And they would cut them to a specific size and to specific specifications, and one was a chief cornerstone. This was the locking one. This is what everything else would lock into. It was a very custom designed stone and as they quarried that to exact specifications when it was delivered as the story goes the builders didn't didn't recognize it and they're like it was smoking dope when they cut this one out this is this one don't fit and so they rejected it and they threw it off to the side and then it got grown over with weeds and again as the story goes somewhere along the line they recognized and realized wait a minute, where's that stone that was rejected? That's the key. That's the one, and they went looking for it, right? Well, just like that story goes, just as, and in, in if in fact it is true, just as they rejected that stone, it wasn't recognized, it was discarded. These leaders didn't recognize Jesus. They're discarding Jesus. They want to kill him. And Jesus points out, look, whoever falls on the stone is going to be broken. The attitude is, if you will receive Christ as your Lord and Savior, if today you will recognize Jesus is the Christ, he's the Son of God. The Bible says that all are sinners by nature and by choice. The Bible says that, that because we're sinners, we've fallen short of the glory of God. And the Bible says that sin brings death to your life. Ultimately, brings death to every part of your life, and it ultimately results in a spiritual death where you're separated from God. But the Bible says that God, because He's a loving God, He gave Jesus Christ to pay the penalty for our sin. Today, you can have a right relationship with God. You can just confess. The Bible says if we confess our sins, that He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And today, you can confess, Lord, I'm a sinner, but I believe you, that you're the Savior. I believe that you died on the cross for my sin in my place. I believe that you rose from the dead, that you ascended into heaven, that you're praying for me, and I'm just going to call out and say, God, I need grace, I need mercy, I need forgiveness, I need you to change me, because I can't change myself. And the Bible teaches that if we'll do that, that God, because he's faithful and good and a loving God, he will forgive you of your sins. He will cleanse you of all unrighteousness. This is the promise that we have. So Jesus says, whoever falls on that stone will be broken, right? God will break you of your sin. He'll, he'll break you of, of all of those things that have been so destructive in your life. But, he says, on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. The attitude, the idea is that God has placed before you today life and death, blessings and cursings. And he begs you, choose life. 
choose to receive Christ and to have him break you of your sin. But if you reject Christ, he will crush you. He will grind you to powder. Because the thing is, is that he's, God is not only loving and merciful, but he's also a God of justice. And he, will not, he, he is not a righteous and a just judge if he fails to judge sin. And so what happens is, is that Jesus, he judged sin, your sin, on the cross. He came as, a, as a, God the Father judged your sin upon Jesus. He who knew no sin, the Bible says, became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. So Jesus paid that penalty, but if you reject that, then God, the righteous judge, has to judge your sin, and that means that you will be crushed. Because you've rejected the only provision for your salvation. This is what Jesus is saying. What's the lesson for all of us here as we draw to a close? I want to bring all of this. Yeah, this is a great historical lesson. But again, we want to bring it down to how do we put feet on our faith? What does this mean to you today? Authority. Authority. I want you to dial in on that. Because that's, that's the pivotal lesson today. Hey, what authority are you doing these things, Jesus? By what authority do you operate? Listen, here's where our application is. Do you truly believe that Jesus has all authority? And if the answer is yes, then do you live submitted to your authority? Or do you wink and cherry pick the the scriptures? You cherry pick the stuff you like. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. right? But you wink at and you just go, I don't like that one under the rug. That one that says, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. I ain't putting that one up on the wall. I don't like that promise. We're, just, we're going to reject that one, right? <clears throat> My friend Tony Clark, who pastors a church in Virginia, he posted this on his social media the other day. He said, we are at a point in Christianity where people don't care if you can back it up with the Bible. Their feelings, their desires, and their emotions override what Scripture says. They don't follow Christ, they follow self. Wow. See, sometimes we have sin in our life and we're willing to reason it away. There is a segment in the church right now and they are insisting on certain lifestyle choices that the Bible clearly speaks against. But here's their argument. What they will say is, well, the Bible was written a very long time ago And it was written to a different culture. And we have evolved as a a species. And things have changed. So the Bible was written 2,000 years ago for that culture. But that doesn't apply to our culture. Now these people call themselves Christians. But they want to kind of wink at those scriptures that contradict their lifestyle. And they say, well, that's just because we've evolved as a culture. So... So God, when he was speaking, he really couldn't have perceived our culture today, right? So, so they decide that they're going to be the authority <coughs> over what scriptures apply to those of 2,000 years ago and what scriptures apply to them today. It's a lie. It's a flat-out lie. I was counseling a gal, Brenda and I, together, and she was a Christian. She had left her husband, and she was shacking up with some guy. And so we just were pleading with her. We're like, look, you, you, you say you're a follower of Christ. We've known you in church for years. 
you know what you're doing is sin. The Bible speaks very clearly about it. And her response was to say, well, God knows my heart. Right? And, and I, I couldn't help myself. I mean, I, I, I said, you, you, you mean that it's deceitfully wicked above all things? <laughs> Who can know it? Yes, God knows that heart because I have the same heart. Right? And, and the issue is, is what we're saying when we take those positions, <coughs> what we're saying when we choose to go away that's contrary to God's word and reason it away, what we're saying is that someone or something else has more authority in my life than Jesus does, right? What we're saying is, hey, you know, my emotions or it might be your temptations or it might be your worldview or your idols or your sexual preferences, whatever it is that you're reasoning, it, reasoning away, what you're saying basically is, yeah, there's Jesus, but he's not the highest authority in this particular area of my life. See, we've got to take a walk with that. Because it's deceitful, this, this heart that we have and these temptations that we have. That was the debate in Jesus' day. Hey, by what authority are you doing this? Who gave you that authority? And it's the, it's the debate in my day. Because does, does Jesus and his word have authority in your life? Or do your emotions have that authority? Do your temptations have that authority? Do your, does your sexual orientation have that authority? And you reason things away. You really have to take a walk with that. When Jesus says something, we got to receive it. we got to believe it. When he commands something, we got to do our best to do it. And listen, it's not because we're right. It's because he's right. Right? Because the truth is, we are all wrong. And all of us begin not in the place where we submit to Jesus. He has to bring us to that place of surrender. And we repent. And that we understand, Jesus, you have all authority. It is your authority, Lord God. He said so much, he said as much in Matthew's gospel. He said, all authority has been given to me. So the issue is, will you yield to that authority or not? I'm going to give you three questions in closing. I pray you'll take a walk with them this week. Maybe you can discuss them in your community groups. Um, And uh, hopefully, yep, there we go. So, uh, three questions. Number one, how are some ways that people deny Jesus' authority today? Write it down, take a walk with it, discuss it in your community groups. What what are some ways that people deny Jesus' authority today? Now, let's take it a little bit more personally. Number two, are there areas of your life where you are functionally denying Jesus' authority? This is where it gets real, right? Write it down, take a walk with it. And here's the deal. We like to grade our own papers, hold it in an open hand, and say, Holy Spirit, you show me any areas of my life where I'm denying Jesus' authority. Here's the third and final question. What truth has God revealed to you that you haven't received or acted upon? What truth is it that God has revealed to you that you haven't received or that you haven't acted upon? Let's pray about that. Let's take a walk with this. Let's let the the scripture lessons from today actually make it into how we live out our faith.